Hi, I'm Doug. I'm David. And we are Beyond Hungry. What do we have going on today, David? Doug, we had the opportunity to interview Derva, who is an educator, community organizer, and a dear friend of the show. She, well, she was born in the West Coast, raised in the East Coast, and w- Wisconsin. Uh, got her master's degree here in Iowa, where we got to meet her and become really good friends with her. Um, shows what Hmong food is. Talked about the culture. You know, shared the history and advocates for the Hmong people. So to get the perspective of her and her traveling and just the experience of the Hmong people here in the U.S. was very, um, really awesome to hear. Yeah, and this is, I believe, our longest episode that we've ever recorded, and that's because mm-hmm. it's just jam-packed full of all of what David just mentioned. There's food, there's culture, there's history, there's how all of it is adapting here in the United States. There's even fighting the patriarchy. Um, <laughs> we really hope you enjoy listening to it. And uh, ap- apologies, Alta, for anyone who is Hmong and is listening. We are we are trying to say it right, and, and mm-hmm, our ears mm-hmm. are adapting a little bit, and, and yeah. we're we're kind of learning what the subtle differences there are. So apologies if we, if we're completely butchering that. Uh, we're trying. It'll take some time for us to to kind of figure out exactly how to say it right. Uh, so, um, but we're, we're we're working on it. So, let's go. want to tell us a little bit of the background of you like i know you've you've moved literally i was like thinking about this the other day you've lived like from coast to coast and everywhere in between mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah that's a that's a really good way to put it so uh again i'm dur i um i like to think of myself as like a blend of everything i think that has to do with how i was raised but also my my background and my people so i am hmong american i was born in central valley in california but i don't really remember it because we only lived there for a little bit a short period of time in my childhood but my parents came to the united states as refugees of the vietnam war and so when they were displaced from their home country of laos into thai refugee camps coming to the u.s was that next step to have a better and more secure life for themselves and their families so when they came to the u.s they landed in California, where myself and the majority of my siblings were born. But we followed family and we followed this growing community of Hmong uh, refugees in the Midwest, specifically Wisconsin and Minnesota area. And so my parents took us um, when I was about six or seven years old. They moved us from Central Valley, California, all the way to the cold, cold Wisconsin, which (laughs) my people are not used to the cold. Like we, you know, are from Southeast Asia and the mountains of Laos. So living in the Midwest was definitely a a cultural, definitely a cultural transition. But I would say that um, I'm really, really fond of the Midwest. And later on my adulthood, like I returned back to the Midwest just, you know, because it always felt like home for me. But uh, a large part of my childhood, I remember even being a pre-teenager was in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, living in the Midwest. Living in predominantly um, Hmong communities, Black Latinx communities. And then after we lived in Wisconsin for several years, my parents followed family again and they really missed the the weather that was central to their identity. 
at home. And they also missed this um, lifestyle of farming and cultivating their own plants and things like that. And they wanted more land and less of this city lifestyle. So they moved us to um, North Carolina, very rural North Carolina, actually, which um, was a huge transition for me, like seeing the city and urban of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and move, moving to very rural Southern North Carolina. Um, it was such a huge transition, like in terms of identity, but in terms of making meaning of who I am as a person. But I like to say I'm a blend of the Midwest and South because after going to school in the South, graduating from college, I moved to Iowa to pursue grad school and you know thought that my two years in Iowa was gonna be it, but turned out to be six years total. So um, I just have an affinity for the Midwest. You know, I, I consider myself Again, like someone from the Midwest and someone also from the South. So what made you choose to go to Iowa for grad school? Like what what played in part, I'm sure it was like part of the program, right? It definitely was. I think a part of me too was there was just a lot that felt like it was always missing for me in the South, not just in terms of um, who I was as a person, but having that really deep family connection. I like my heart and most of my siblings were agree. Like most of us actually returned to the Midwest. Um, mm -hmm. I have one who lives, I have a sis sister who lives in Minneapolis and their brother who lives in Madison um, because we all just wanted to come back to the Midwest. So for me, it was almost like a sense of comfort. So if I moved to Iowa, I would only be five hours away from Wisconsin, which, you know, the Midwest um, distance doesn't mean anything. Like you just <laughs> suck it up and you do it, you do the drive. But I moved to Iowa because I was really, really interested in the graduate program that I pursued in student affairs, higher education. Like that was my number one priority. And then the second part of it was I wanted to challenge myself. I wanted to, I needed to kind of step away from like a family unit and that uh, responsibility of being a Hmong daughter and um, just like all the limitations almost of what I was able to do. So Iowa was like a clean break. I didn't know anyone, didn't have any family, but I, I was like, I'm going to do it for two years. I'm in my 20s. Like if I don't do this now, I'm never going to have that chance. But it's, it was a place that I grew to love. I would say did not love it at first. I think a lot <laughs> of us who moved to Iowa kind of had to grow into it. But having the people that I met through my graduate program and then even understanding the history of it, like immigrant and refugee resettlement in Iowa was just really, really near and dear to me and just gave me such a, like a much better appreciation of living in Iowa. When you actually got here, did it, did it feel good? Did it feel freeing to be away from that family or did it suddenly start to get a little bit lonely? I think it was a lot of it actually, because even when I came to visit the graduate program in February, it was mm -hmm. snowing and I was like, oh <laughs> gosh, can I do this again? You know, I loved it as a child, but I don't know as an adult. But even when I came to visit the graduate program um, in Iowa, I even like research the things that I knew I was going to need. So I researched mm -hmm. Asian stores, like Asian grocery stores. <laughs> I even researched restaurants just to make sure that 
something that was so central to me was mm -hmm. going to exist in Iowa. Mm -hmm. And I was okay with the fact that most of the grocery stores were Korean owned or Chinese owned grocery stores. Mm -hmm. I was like, I can deal with this because I can get some main ingredients. But if I needed other ingredients, you know, I'm going to have to look for like Southeast Asian owned grocery stores that have mm -hmm. like all the ingredients I need to make like pho or other Southeast Asian specific dishes. But mm -hmm. I think initially I was really, really excited. And then once I settled and once I started my graduate program and things got really rocky in the graduate program, I really started missing home. I started missing not just the physical location of home, but having a Hmong community like that is for me intricately tied with home for me, but having extended family members, having parents or having people who are Hmong is mm -hmm. so intricately tied to uh, what makes me as a person and what's important to me. So throughout my two years out of the graduate program and another four years of working in Iowa, I look back and I reflect and I was like, I actually wrote a lot about missing home without <laughs> explicitly saying I miss home, but I used to write things like, I miss my mom's cooking or <laughs> I went to the Des Moines farmer's market today and guess what? I found a Hmong vendor and I spoke Hmong <laughs> and it was great. Um, so for me, it was a lot of these things that I said that were like, I was pretty much saying that I missed home and I felt a, a, a huge disconnect and a huge longing for sense of belonging mm -hmm. that, again, I didn't really realize until I moved back to North Carolina where I'm here um, closer to my family again. But it was definitely a transition of, I was excited, then it got really, really difficult. And then I felt more secure in my friendships and relationships in Iowa. And then again, that, that longing for, you know, being connected back to my home community. So you said you were looking for like grocery stores to get the main ingredients, but what, what ingredients did you know that you needed to have before you move? Yeah. So I knew for sure, like when I think about what is like essential to Chinese or Korean cuisine versus Lao and Vietnamese cuisine, like one main thing would be like having more than one options for fish sauce, which is so central <laughs> to Southeast Asian cuisine. Like, you know, I pick fish sauce based off of the brand um, mm -hmm. and based off the logo. I don't know the name of the brand, but based off like the logo, like, is it, you know, the one with the crab or is it the one with the squid on it? <laughs> um, like, like those kind of ingredients that are so central to Southeast Asian cuisine. But even things like I wanted to make pho, so I needed um, like specific ingredients that you need to make pho. And at that point, I was wasn't really exploring cooking yet and so I was so used to buying things that were already packaged together like mm -hmm. there's like a, a spice uh, a spice kit that's for pho that has like your star anise uh, your cinnamon and a couple of more um a couple of more um, herbs or ingredients, which, you know, in most of these grocery stores, you can get star anise and cinnamon. But where I was at, I was like, I need the packet that, you know, puts it all together. <laughs> um, yeah. And, it, but even also like when I think about like making uh, la, which is, uh, we call it la, but I think in Laos it's larb or mm. on the menu is L-A-R-B, which is a mincemeat um, salad that's served um, chilled room temperature. The main ingredient is like mint, but roasted rice powder. And mm. you can toast rice yourself and like, you know, go through all of that and make yourself. But again, where I was at, I was looking as a grad student, I was looking for simple, easy, and already done. Um, mm. And so... 
not being able to find rice powder at any of the stores that I went to was really frustrating because I was like, and I remember I posted about it too on Facebook. I was like, I'm trying to make lye and I can't find the rice powder <laughs> and I can't find all these peppers and spices that comes in a prepackaged that I could just dump into my salad to make this la salad. And I remember being so frustrated because I went to like three other grocery stores in Ames, Iowa, and I couldn't find mm-hmm. it. And then I had to Google grocery stores in Des Moines, <laughs> which uh, when you live in Ames, it seems kind of like so far away because distance wise, <laughs> miles wise, it is like, it's what, 30 miles away, maybe mm-hmm. more. Um, and I was like, didn't really want to take that time to drive out to uh, Des Moines, but I did. So every other week or every week when I did my grocery runs, I would plan ahead to go to these Asian stores in Des Moines. And at that point as a grad student, I think I went alone. I don't think I actually went with anyone and made it like an experience or like like a bonding mm-hmm. experience with a friend. Mm-hmm. I just did it by myself. Like I just looked up Asian stores and I went and it was, it was, um, like really fulfilling to go to a store that I knew was owned by Vietnamese families Mm -hmm. and see all the ingredients that I grew up with. And so that was really my way of like making sure that I felt like I belonged and also making sure that I can eat the foods that are so central to who I am and how I grew up. So I know like when, when you move away and I think I feel like all three of us have moved away from, um, away from our family and you brought up how you, you missed things that your mom made or your dad or that your family makes that you miss the most? Yeah. So it's very, I think for anyone who's Hmong, they will laugh at me like, this is so basic. Like, why would you <laughs> like miss something that's so basic that you could make by yourself? But for me, it was guotza or Hmong pepper sauce that we eat um, as like to dip our foods with, to really add that spice and flavor to our foods. Um, having a guotza always just makes meats, rice, um, and, and noodles, anything. It just makes it taste so much better. So when I was moving to Iowa, I was thinking, oh my gosh, I'm not going to have any quetzal. I don't, I don't know how to make it. Um, I, you know, I watched my parents, I watched my mom and I've watched aunties make quetzal growing up, but I've never even took the time to learn how to make it. So when I was moving, one of my college friends, I, she wanted to get me a parting gift to, um, so, so that when I drove from North Carolina to Iowa, that I had a gift to, to bring with me to my first apartment in Iowa. And I told her, I was like, I don't need you to get me anything, but can you just make me like a little tub of guitar so that when I go to <laughs> Iowa, I have, you know, something to eat it. Like I have something that, you know, I, I know I'm going to crave and want in Iowa. And she did. She made me a little Tupperware of Quetzal and I put it in a cooler and I drove that from North Carolina to Iowa so that when I got there, like I had something that reminded me of home. Um, and like those kind of like simple dishes are some of the dishes that I know that my, like my mom makes that I just always crave. And I, I'm kind of like stubborn to where I don't want to learn how to make it because um, e- either like my friends know how to make it really well, my aunties or my mom knows how to make it really well. So even today, now that I live back in North Carolina and my parents live 
less than 45 minutes away, sometimes I'll just tell my mom, like, I'm really craving a specific what's all. Like, can you make this for me and just come bring it to me? Um, and my mom would. She would um, actually bring more than just what's all. Like, she'll uh, grill some meat. She will um, make sticky rice. In Hmong culture, we do a lot of, like, purple sticky rice where we dye mm. the rice and it's a purple color. But she'll make, like, a whole meal for me and then bring that along with the dish that I asked for. And I know that I can learn how to make it, but I think there's something about like your mom making a dish that is so traditional that you grew up eating that I can never replicate. So until my mom can no longer cook, I'm not going to learn how to make it. I'm just going <laughs> to rely on her to come over and bring me Tupperware of what's all. How about you, Doug? What's, what's the, a dish that like you crave from your, like your mom or your family? So, I mean, I think my my parents are a little bit different. My mom definitely, I think she tried to assimilate some of her cooking styles because we just weren't into it. You know, mm. when we were kids, we weren't as into it as they might have hoped. Um, but I remember like one thing that I I have not attempted to try and do. Um, when I was a kid, she got a, a dehydrator, just make lots of like fruit chips and things mm -hmm. like that. Um, and then she she did something kind of interesting that has kind of like stuck with me as being like really, really amazing was I, she essentially made like Korean bulgogi um, with a couple of other maybe sort of like flourishes or additions of herbs and things. Um, and then she dehydrated that. Uh, and so we ended up having like this kind of Korean bulgogi beef jerky, which um, she used to send to me in care packages when I was in undergrad and we would just like rip one of these like five pound bags open and then I I would eat a couple. But I remember like my a couple of my roommates just got really obsessed with it. And then after like a week, it would be gone because people would just end up snacking on it the entire time. Like this is not the kind of beef jerky that you get at like the gas station or even like the fancy pants like beef jerky that you can get at like specialty stores, which is like ended up with this super addictive beef jerky that uh, I once again like I haven't attempted it like a because I just don't feel like I, I want to be at that point yet Durr, but then um, also I don't have a dehydrator and I don't know <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not at that point in my life where where I have enough kitchen space where I can just like yeah I'm gonna have a dehydrator now um, but that's like something that I definitely remember that like my mom made that like every once I'm just like ah oh, I wish I could have that and because like I can't get anything like that anywhere else so. That's so interesting because bulgogi is like so like like there's a lot of sauce of bulgogi. Like yes. I always remember it as like a saucy beef dish. So for it to yeah. be like dehydrated, that's so interesting. And that's really creative too on your mom's part. Yeah, no, it's just like you take that flavor profile and then you just intensify it by dehydrate by taking all the moisture out of it. And so you end up with this super salty, sweet, garlicky, gingery, sesame, oily kind of like uh, jerky that I, like I said, I don't think I've ever seen anything else like it out there. So. Wow. David. So my mom would make, it's actually also my, my dad's favorite dish. It's uh it's called chili negro, which is, um, with me steak, which is like skirt steak cut into little pieces, but the main is the sauce and it's like a black sauce with, I forget what chili, what dried chili it is with like garlic. And since so you toast it and you blend it, and you put like chicken stock or um, like boiling water. So I'd like figure out the recipe, but it's just like a dark, dark chili sauce. It's very smoky, sweet, garlicky. 
And then also that gets paired with um, frijoles de olla, which is, you know, pinto beans in the clay pot. Mm, nice. I have the clay pot, but <laughs> I don't, I think, I feel like it's a little difficult and I'd like, I want to learn, but kind of like Dur is like, I'm just going to wait until <laughs> time progresses and, and see how, how that goes. But that's, those are the things that I, I miss. It's like, literally it's just the sauce and the beans that is probably my favorite. Yeah. How long does something like that take to make? It sounds like a while, right? Yeah. The beans in the clay pot take, mm-hmm. take a while. Cause you're going from like, you know, dry beans to, to that. And then if you mess it up, um, the, the beads kind of taste weird. Mm. So it's a lot of trial error. It's definitely <laughs> a, a mastering over time. And mm-hmm. I'll, I'll, like, I'll just wait. wait it out. <laughs> <laughs> so did, did anyone else get care packages when you were off, like away from your family? Did your, your parents send you like giant boxes of, of strange goods that your roommates would kind of be confused by? They wouldn't send me care packages per se, but when, so the six years I was in Iowa, my mom would fly to Minneapolis where her side of the family is and where mm. my younger sister lives. And when she, she will be in Minneapolis, she'll be like, Hey, drive the three hours to come see me. And when I go, she always had tons of like <laughs> snacks and stuff that she purchased in, in Minneapolis. <laughs> and it was always like, when I got there, when I left, like I, like I left with more than I came with because it was just, <laughs> you know, like all these like different fruits and like dry snacks and things like that. So that was more of the care packages I got was when my parents were either physically in the Midwest or when mm-hmm. I went to go visit them. But really it was, it was almost like an expectation that I send the care packages oh, <laughs> because oh, I'm, okay. because I'm the one who lives in a different place and, you know, I'm the one who has the job now. So I should uh-huh. take care of my parents and I should send them things. Um, so yeah, it was kind of reverse for me. So wait, what, what were you sending your parents? I didn't send them anything, (laughs) (laughs) which, you know, like it's probably bad on my part, but when I went home, my care package was, I take you out to eat at any restaurant that you want to go eat at. Oh, okay. Um, So that, that was a trade-off. There we go. There we go. Can you touch on like Hmong food and, and you also touch about like the culture of like cultivating in the mountains. Like, Mm -hmm. can you give us a little like background on, on Hmong culture? Yeah, definitely. So... Unfortunately, when I think about the Hmong people and our Hmong history, it actually comes with a really difficult and painful history. And so through oral history, which is how we pass along knowledge from our ancestors and elders to us, we actually learned that Hmong people actually migrated a lot throughout Asia. So we actually came from Southern China. Um, This was many, many centuries ago. But then we were displaced to Laos, where we created our own villages and farming communities. But then in the 1960s and 70s, the Vietnam War was happening. So many communities and ethnic minority groups, like the Hmong people, um, had to leave their country of Laos um, because they were facing persecution. And so a fact that a lot of people don't know is that 
the United States under President JFK at the time actually ordered a secret military plan to fight communism in Southeast Asia. And so the US actually enlisted ethnic minority groups like the Hmong people to fight along and side with the US. So mm. my people had to flee Laos and Thailand to Thai refugee camps. And it wasn't until the 1980s with the passing of the Refugee Act that Hmong refugees began resettling in the United States. My own oh, wow. parents resettled. Yeah, my own parents resettled to California in 1987. And so there was a large exodus out of Southeast Asia. And the U.S. has one of the largest Hmong populations in the world, um, you know, next to Southeast Asia, of course. But today, California, Minnesota, and Wisconsin have the largest Hmong populations in the U.S. Okay. How... How long um, were the Hmong people in the, the Thai refugee camps? Because it sounds like what you were describing was like a fairly, like many, many years. Yeah, I want to say it was anywhere from like 10 to 20 to 30 years, depending on when your family was like sponsored to leave. And so my parents, when they went to the Thai refugee camps, they were preteens. They were like, 13, 14 years old. So mm -hmm. they grew up their childhood. They just remember, you know, little snippets of like going to school, um, you know, fetching water um, from, you know, the local water source or bringing it home to their villages. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, just like this really traumatic experience of war and um, mm -hmm. food scarcity and losing family members. And then um, being in a, another country, you know, in Thailand and going through going through refugee camps and so it's it's definitely painful like when when I when we hear about our history but I think it really also impacts like our resiliency in the United States I think that's mm -hmm. why like so many Hmong people shout out to Hmong women specifically you know we're just <laughs> like we care so much about our community and we want our legacy and our history to to still be there so that we can further, um, you know, the futures of our children, the futures of our community in the United States. Do your parents ever talk about what they ate? Yeah, it's definitely a lot of uh, like food scarcity was definitely the theme because in times of war, there's just, you know, not a lot of food mm -hmm. available. Um, my mom actually tells me about like all these different like herbs that grow naturally this is what we ate so that we didn't feel hungry you know this is what we made so that we felt full and so I just remember her just telling me that it was just not a lot of meat and not a lot of you know maybe there was rice and herbs and vegetables but that really was what they had access to so once they came to the United States, they didn't have a lot of money because they were refugees. And so um, growing up, like we grew up poor. Like I remember um, the neighborhoods we lived in. I remember just going through the school system. And so when we, um, you, know, you know, got our like monthly benefits, like I just remember like vivid memories of going to the grocery store with my mom and us stocking up tons of like fresh produce and canned uh, goods just to make it last. Um, but I but I think one of the things too about like Hmong people and I think it ties back to our history is that 
we're super resilient and we're super resourceful. So uh, while we were bulking up all of our our you know produce the, at the beginning of the month, we were able to make it last. You know, cooking was so essential to the household. Having fresh produce and making that into like several dishes, like it was just something that my parents were inherently really good at, and also what my people are good at. Like they're able to just generate a lot of volume with, with only a few ingredients. So what would you consider Hmong cuisine? Yeah, you know, when I thought about that question, it really is such a difficult question to answer. But when I think of like what Hmong food is, it's so reflected in my people's migration because we picked up dishes and ingredients along the way from Southern China to Laos and other parts of Southeast Asia. But something that I really think about when I think about what's the heart of the Hmong people, we are cultivators. We understand agriculture. So when the Hmong people came to Laos, they lived in mountain villages. So we grew our own crops, own herbs, and we also raised our own livestock. I think when I think about Hmong cuisine, it's really simple. It's really down to earth because the ingredients that you see in your dish, you're gonna be able to taste it. So an example that I have is one of our most common dishes, it's a soup. And in the soup, when you look at it, you can easily identify that, oh, this is a fatty piece of pork mixed with a bunch of dark leafy greens and it's in a clear broth. And so you know it's gonna be like salty and hearty. Um, mm. And soups, stews, boiled meats with like freshly butchered chickens and fresh herbs, steamed dishes. Those are really popular dishes in Hmong cuisine. And of course, we eat everything with a side of plain steamed white rice because that just mm -hmm. makes you, you know, that carb actually makes you full mm -hmm. um, after mm -hmm. eating these dishes. Um, I also think that it really isn't a complete meal until you eat mung fu with pepper sauce or, or what yeah. we call it guotsa. And it's made of Thai chili peppers that you ground in a mortar and pestle and then you season it with salt, maybe cilantro and garlic, but definitely like a little dab of fish sauce. Um, and like, I, as I mentioned earlier, with soups and stews and um, steamed dishes, a lot of monk food is made in a volume because it's really mm. made to feed the, the large multi-generational families that lived in the same village hut in the Hmong communities mm -hmm. in Laos. And so, um, you know, we're just used to making a ton of food, even here in the U.S. Like, you never make food just for yourself. Like, that's just not what it is in Hmong culture. You always make enough to, to feed others in your family, too. But I think monk food is not, it's not going to be like overly spiced. It's not going to have a ton of ingredients. It's just going to be very simple and salty and warm. Um, and then when I think about like, what are some of the common ingredients or vegetables that we use? Some of the most common ingredients are like bamboo shoots, string beans. Um, today I had bitter melon, bitter melon only, you know, when you're, uh, when you're an adult and you like start to crave it, like that's like an, old, an adult kind of food, bitter melon <laughs> has an acquired taste. Um, Older but, taste buds. Yes, yes, definitely. <laughs> but we love, we love fresh herbs. Like we don't have a lot of dry herbs 
we have a lot of fresh mm-hmm. herbs that we pick out of our garden. Um, like I'm growing lemongrass. You know, my mom has a, a lime a lime tree where we use the lime leaves. And then of course, cilantro green onions are really, you know, really essential. But if, if that's the heart of monk food, we definitely do adopt a ton of other dishes too because of that migration. So we especially love like Lao food because, you know, people live in the country of Laos. And so it's so common for us to like want to, to make and eat like a really delicious and spicy papaya salad that we mm-hmm. eat with our, with our hands because we dip it in sticky rice or um, to crave something called kopong, which is a savory coconut bread curry soup made with chicken and rice noodles. It's very mm. similar to like mm. curry, curry laksa, if you're familiar with curry laksa. Oh, yeah. yeah, it's like a thicker like curry broth, but it's, you know, super warm and hearty. But, um, you know, we also love Vietnamese food. Like we grew up eating pho. Like that was always a thing. Like, you know, pho, again, food made in volume to be able to share at like family mm-hmm. gatherings and whatnot. But I definitely do see that Hmong food keeps adapting and shifting regionally, especially in the context now that, you know, we live in the United States. I I wanted to get your take on how Hmong food is evolving right now uh, in terms of like, you know, is it different from the Midwest, you know, in Hmong village to the places out in California to North Carolina or, or even, you know, on your journey as you're starting to acquire and, and, you know, gain the ability to cook more of these things for yourselves. How are you kind of adapting some of those foods to, you know, your new palate, especially as you want to be a little more vegetable forward, a little more millennial with some of these things? Yeah, I would, I would say that the region definitely impacts the food in the U.S. because every, I think in general, every region in the U.S. has a food culture associated with it. And mm-hmm. so like Hmong food is a product of that, that it's going to be a little bit different according to the region. So I know that in California, especially in the Central Valley area, the Fresno, Merced area, where there's a high population of Hmong communities, like I know that food is going to be like super, super traditional. Like it's going to be that food that you grew up eating and that the recipe remains unchanged because <laughs> it's so like tied to tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of similar that I, that I see that in the um, Midwest, like specifically Minneapolis, it's going to be like more traditional it's going to be i think i think it's spicier in the midwest i don't know (laughs) um but it's going to be like very traditional in the minneapolis area because again of the high population of Hmong folks Mm -hmm. in north carolina specifically because north carolina outside of like charlotte or the raleigh area it's going to be more rural communities i think it just really the the only times i really have monk food it's not really in the restaurants I think mm. there's maybe one Hmong restaurant that I know of in the entire state of North Carolina that sells mm. Hmong specific food. So the foods that I've had are going to be at like family gatherings and like graduation parties and family celebrations that mm-hmm. people cook and bring to the party. Um, and so what I have noticed about in the South is that I think it's a, I think it's just like, like, very similar to like southern cuisine i feel like it's a lot unhealthier in the south like things are a lot sweeter um things are a lot more fried like we okay. they do a lot of like fried pork there's also this stew that i believe actually came out of the chinese culture because when i was explaining it to joe 
he was like, oh, that's our, that's our stew. Like you, you all, y'all, y'all took that from us. Um, but it's like this um, pork stew that it's, it's a sweet pork, sweet pork stew. And so it's mm. really dark. It's really heavy. And there's like boiled, like um, hard boiled eggs in it, but it's pork based and it's just really, really sweet. But I didn't eat that in the Midwest, but I right. definitely eat it and have access to a lot of it at these Hmong family gatherings in the South. So I do see it you know really replicating according to the region but as like as i mentioned earlier as someone who is a millennial and someone who is like really into like food culture but also you know i have the privilege of thinking about nutrition and i have the economic privilege to be like do i want to shop at this grocery store or that grocery store so i think a lot about how the foods that I grew up eating, how it could be more healthy, because we don't talk a lot about health and nutrition in the Hmong community. So today, you know, in my 30s, my parents are in their 50s, and we will cook dishes, and I will tell my mom, hey, maybe let's not fry the chicken this time, maybe let's grill it. Or <laughs> um, I don't think that, you know, we should be drinking a lot of um like soda and sweet tea with our meals, mom, like let's go for like hot tea instead. And so even just helping <laughs> the parents like think more about nutrition or even like when I, when they come over, I'm always going to make something that has tons of greens in it and vegetables. Mm-hmm. And my mom is always, you know, she's so snarky with it. She's like, Oh, I forgot my daughter who wants to, you know, to be thin. Like that's her mentality is like <laughs> healthy because you want to be thin. Me, I'm like, I eat healthy because I want to live until I'm like 80 or 90, you know, mm-hmm. uh, because I know that in my community, we don't talk a lot about nutrition and we don't talk a lot about how like the American food system has impacted the how we consume food. Mm-hmm. That I see a lot of my elders who are getting very, very ill in their late 50s and who are not making it past the age of 70 because mm-hmm. of like dietary, um, like, like choices that they've made in like the lack of nutrition or exercise. So, you know, as someone who's a millennial, someone who's, you know, super privileged to be educated, like I want to like slowly start to help people understand that every time we have a family gathering, for example, it doesn't always have to revolve around eating as much as possible, right? Mm -hmm. Like it doesn't like, that doesn't have to be a memory. Like when it's a birthday party, we don't always have to stuff our faces with food and then, you know, it's just sit around and do nothing. Like we could have better, healthier relationships with, with our food. Mm. That's true. I think that's that that plays, I think, when a lot of immigrants um, mm-hmm. come to the U.S., they kind of, the American food um, system, it's, the food is like very unhealthy and very addictive. Mm-hmm. And I feel like, you know, we, we fall trapped to it and. And like, kind of like you said, like, you know, you, you have the access to meat now. So like now you kind of, I wouldn't say overindulge, but just because you have access to it, it kind of becomes like a habit of just having it every meal. It kind of like feels like it's a necessity and a thing. And I'm, that's pretty incredible that you're kind of changing that mindset kind of slowly. Yeah. But with a lot of resistance, always. <laughs> like a lot of resistance. A lot of like oh, my daughter who doesn't mm-hmm. eat meat. And I always have to remind my parents, I do eat meat. I just limit it. I don't eat pork, which mm-hmm. is, but a lot of Hmong dishes have pork in it. So whether it's like egg rolls or stews or like 
again, pork that's fried. When we have family gatherings, they'll forget. And so all the dishes, they'll like butcher like like a pig. And so all the dishes have pork in it. (laughs) So I just remember like going to family gatherings, like, no, I'm so hungry because the only thing I can eat is the sticky rice. And so it's just, (laughs) you know, even like helping my family members understand like, um, you know, just having a better relationship with food. And they always ask me like, why don't you eat pork? Like, is it like a religious thing? For me, it's not. It's just, you know, I've just, it's one of those meats that I've chosen. Like once I became pescatarian or reverted back to start eating meat again, it's one of those proteins that I've just decided was not the healthiest for me personally. You know, there are dishes that are going to be pork based that I miss in one culture, but I'm like, I'm not just, you know, I'm just going to have to make my own version on my own time. It sounds like you've been kind of advancing your understanding of how to make some of these dishes. Where are you getting this education from? Are you, are you talking to family members? Are you talking to your, to your aunties? Are you, are you going online? Are there cookbooks? My interest in cooking didn't start until I was in graduate school. Mm. Um, so growing up, you know, as, uh, as a Hmong daughter in the Hmong community, I resisted cooking because it was so tied in with like gender roles, gender expectations, sexism, patriarchy, all of that in my Hmong community. So I hated cooking because women uh, were expected to cook and care for the families always. Mm -hmm. And every time, you know, when I was a teenager, my parents would force me to go to these Hmong family gatherings and they would wake me up at like five or six in the morning on a Mm. weekend, you know, and as a teenager, like that's the worst thing ever. (laughs) And they would make me go on Saturdays and we would go and I would cook from like 6 a.m. all the way up to like 1 p.m. And then after doing all that cooking, you know, the main dishes and side dishes, then I had to serve the men uh, first before I got to eat, which is a part of like our Hmong patriarchal structure. And so I hated cooking because it, the, my only memory tied back to it was, it was a chore one at home, but two that it was something that I couldn't enjoy because it wasn't really for me. It was for others. And so I hated cooking all through undergrad. I hated cooking. Um, when I went to university, like most of my friends were Hmong and they grew up learning these traditional dishes. So even though I went to family gatherings and helped cooked, I was always just responsible for the garnishes, never really the main dishes, because that's what our moms and aunties did. Like they did the main dishes Mm -hmm. and I just had to like wash vegetables and like make sure everything looks good. And every little thing that they needed me to do, like go fetch this or, you know, go do this. Like I just did that. And so I didn't actually learn how to make a a mong dish, a traditional mong dish whether that's like a curry noodle soup or like stuff like papaya salad. Like I didn't actually learn how to make that because I never really had to growing up. Like I just helped, you know, with the ingredients. But when I graduated university and I wanted to go to a grad school, that's really when I was like, I want to be more healthy. I want to be more pescatarian and living by myself and also moving to Iowa. I had to learn if I wanted it and I craved it, I couldn't go to a restaurant to go get it. And so I had to force myself how to learn how to cook for myself, but also how to share my food with like my roommates or my friends. And I actually found and discovered that I enjoy cooking because for me, it's now a form of expression. It's a form of creativity. Mm -hmm. And it's also such a great hobby because 
you can look at these ingredients that grew out of the ground or you picked it from the grocery store <laughs> and then make it into something delicious or not so delicious depending on you know if it's the first <laughs> time making it but it was it was just it was an act of like self-care and self-love to be mm-hmm. able to make food for myself that tastes good and to mm-hmm. learn these new skills and so that's really where like i learned how to cook today it's just kind of like exploring and then i have a hobby of just buying cookbooks especially written by women of color where i can learn how to make different dishes that are like for example paleo korean like right like what does that mean um, or you know even looking at um like chrissy Teigen's cookbook and making some of those thai dishes that she shared that her mom wrote in the book and making it you know more palatable and healthy for myself and so really now it's just like a form of creativity and it's a lot of fun actually now for me that's, that's great to hear i know that you've been doing like a lot of like posts um about like challenging like not only societal, but like cultural, like gender, gender roles. Do you find yourself like challenging those, those gender roles now with your cooking? So when I cook, it's for like myself and my partner, Joe, and it's a, it's, you know, it's a form of like self-care for me at home. But when we go to like family gatherings, it's completely different because when we go to family gatherings, then I have to exist in this structure of expectations of, okay, the men butcher the cow and they are taking apart all the parts of the cow and then the women are going to be responsible for cooking it um i (laughs) still play the role of garnish and vegetables because i'm like i don't know how to make these traditional dishes like the traditional way um Mm -hmm. and i just like default to the moms and aunties and sister-in-laws like what do you need me to help with um so i think that in my community i don't it's really 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 hard for me individually to challenge these like really really sexist practices in the Hmong community it's really challenging to actually do it when it's only me and it's a family gathering of a hundred, right? Because then, mm-hmm. then it turns into an individual issue of, oh, this, your daughter, like, is not compliant, right? And it, for me, mm-hmm. I'm like, I don't want to be the one who's not compliant at this, you know, family gathering. Um, but so, yeah, it's, I wish, I wish there was, there were more of me to resist and like, to resist at these family gatherings. But it's really hard in the South when, I, I see that in the South, I think it plays along with that conservative Southern culture. Um, I just see that the gender roles are just so much more stark in my Hmong community in the South mm. versus in the Midwest, where there's a lot of like immigrant and refugee activism, especially in Minneapolis, St. Paul, that I see a lot of the Hmong gender roles really change and, and, and really shift because there's just a ton of Hmong women in leadership roles who are elected officials, who run nonprofits in their own businesses, mm-hmm. but I don't see that in North Carolina. And so it's like, I can resist at these Hmong parties, right? But my community doesn't reflect that once I step out of it. Um, so yeah, I wish I could. I wish there needs to be more people who are willing to do it with me. You don't make it like a little plate for yourself. I'm like, I'm gonna eat this before them. I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like if I'm hungry. But you know, it's, it's really funny because so my my younger sister who lives in Minneapolis, Twin Cities, um, you know, she is just, she's just so badass with it. Like she, like, I'm, 
I'm really pragmatic. Like I like to resist, but then I also like to be like just super strategic about it. I don't want to like let people know that I'm in direct disagreement with them. Like I don't like to be blatant about it, but I like to be like come from a, like a learning approach of why I'm doing it. Mm-hmm. But my younger sister is like, I give no craps. Like she will like, you know, when it's time to eat, she'll be the first one in line like before all the men <laughs> elders. Right. And I'm like, a part of me is like, no, don't do that now. Like don't do that. It's so blatant. It's so like visible. Um, but But, you know, if I need to, like, if I'm really hungry and all the men are eating, like, I'll just complain to my mom, like, I'm so hungry. And then she'll just be like, just go make a dish. Like, just go. You know, she'll just Mm -hmm. put up with that. Mm -hmm. That's pretty, that's pretty incredible. Like, you have the two, (laughs) two different approaches within, like, just you and your sister. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And it's funny because I'm definitely, like, a lot more vocal about it, Um, like, vocal as in critiquing about it but my sister's a lot more blatant with it like she's just mm-hmm. completely just blatant with the with the um resistance and again i love it but i'm also like that's just not my style like that just doesn't work for me as you know um a daughter who's much older and expected to like take care of the family mm-hmm. um i just have to understand like where my role is and how much i can actually push in my community yeah i mean that's i think there's two different kinds of actions and also, like you say, like you're older and there's different perspectives. It's like, you know, being the, a younger child, you kind of like, they kind of get that little, little bit of freedom sometimes. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> as I, I'm, I'm the youngest. And yeah, as you my, know. I'm the youngest too. My so. siblings. As you both know. Yeah. My siblings <laughs> have brought it up multiple times. They're like, oh, you get away with this. Like my, my growing up and my upbringing was completely different than theirs and mm-hmm. you know there's mm-hmm. not as much pressure but that, that's very oh, yeah. interesting mm-hmm. <laughs> we've kind of talked about how Hmong cuisine has been influenced um, based on kind of the path they've charted around the map I'm I'm curious as to like whether the converse has happened as well do you feel like the Hmong people helped spread any like cultural artifacts or, or cuisine from southern China and then from there then to the Thai refugee camps, did they introduce anything to Thailand and, and things like that? Do you feel like there's there's been any kind of like bleed that way? That is a really good question. I don't know, honestly. I, I know how we've, you know, adopted different dishes, but I don't know like what influence we have on other communities. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, the only accusing I can think of is that we have a very unique sticky rice dish that we make. So we take, um, we, I think, I think the rice naturally grows in like a dark purple color. And then we use that to soak with um, uh, dry sticky rice, uncooked sticky rice. Mm-hmm. and that dye naturally dyes our rice to purple and so we have this you know beautiful sticky rice that's this vibrant purple color that is very unique to like Hmong cuisine um, but I think that is like the only thing I can think of I know other communities when they come to like you know in college I used to run um, a Hmong student association and we used to do a food booth every year and mm-hmm. other people used to come to our booth every year and it's like hey, you're the ones with the purple sticky rice. Like we want purple sticky (laughs) rice. It doesn't taste differently. Like it tastes the exact same, but I think the color and the appeal of it, you know, and it's it's Mm -hmm. like social media worthy. You you can take a picture of this purple rice that you've never seen before. But that's Mm -hmm. the most significant impact that I can think of is our our sticky rice. 
Is that where you'd like recommend for people who are are interested in in trying Hmong food or or learning more about it? Like, what do you think is a, a good entry point for them? Something to kind of ease them into the the waters there? Oh yeah, definitely. If I was gonna make a plate and I was like, this is an introduction of Hmong food, and to not make it so like scary for people, I would totally do uh, a purple sticky rice with mm-hmm. um, like a grilled meat. Uh, specifically, we have this dish i don't know if we took it from other cultures but we have a chicken wing that we um strategically debone and then we stuff it with like um vermicelli noodles cabbage and carrots and it's like (laughs) either deep fried or it's grilled but it's like this yeah it's like this fatty piece of like chicken (laughs) that's like Mm -hmm. almost stuffed with like what you eat in egg roll um, mm-hmm. And then I would also have a side of guzza, like that pepper sauce. So then you're having this like starchy, carby, sticky rice, and then you have your delicious, meaty protein, and then you top it off with a spicy and um, and just just a spicy and salty little dip. So that would be like my ideal dish to show someone. Um, mm-hmm. But it's a lot of work that like deboned <laughs> chicken wing, like you have to manually mm-hmm. debone. It's a lot of work. I personally don't know how to make it because it's too intricate, but that's something that I would totally buy or make for somebody to introduce into monkey zine. That sounds, that sounds amazing. That sounds delicious. I'm starving (laughs) right now after you talking about that. Yeah. Um, I mean, it is around dinner time, but like I'm, yeah. Yeah. And you know, actually, since you're both in Iowa, if you ever, you know, wanted to take a little road trip to Hmong Village in Minneapolis, you know, St. Paul, mm-hmm. they actually have a ton of vendors that make stuffed chicken wings. That's how they market it. Nice. Yeah. I mean, we'll, we'll definitely have to do that. One of my favorite things I like to ask, and when we talk about like, you know, talk about like blending all this flavor and spice, my whole thing is um, I have something called like the unknown flavor and it's, kind of like the experience around you you know when you enjoy and you consume a dish or any food usually like the environment and the people you're around makes an impact of why that you know why that dish becomes such a memorable thing or such more enjoyable than like having it in a different occasion what's like your favorite food memory hmm it's really it's really funny so my favorite food memory has to be when we were moving from Wisconsin to North Carolina, which is, I mean, it could be anywhere from like a 16 to 20 hour drive, depending on how you break it up. So when I was a preteen, that was when my family moved us to North Carolina. And I just remember stopping at rest areas along the way and my mom packing food for us in foil wrap like not even like in tupperware or ziploc bags mm-hmm. but like in foil wrap and uh a, a central thing to mon cuisine is you like farm raise so you raise your own chickens and then you butcher your own chickens and it's a very um i mean the actual act itself still traumatizing to me like i still hate doing it to actually butcher chickens but we still do it um but there is a very specific taste to like farm raised chicken that mm-hmm. most folks grow because it's not going to be like super stuffed with hormones like the ones that you see at the grocery stores they're not going to be like super fat and meaty mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. flesh but um so i remember just like just a taste of like boiled mung chicken that's fresh 
uh, along with like different herbs. And then mom always makes like sticky rice and then like the guizal sauce. So it's very plain. So it's like you have your boiled chicken breast, which has absorbed some of that like broth and herby, uh, mm-hmm. like herb taste. And then you have a simple sticky rice and guizal. And I just remember you know, stopping at rest areas and, you know, my, my mom will lay all the food for us. And, but then, you know, you add the American twist, you know, you have these young kids who are like, I want American food. And so <laughs> the trade-off was that I remember the most delicious meal was at these rest stops, you know, where we would be sitting outdoors. Don't even know what state we're in, but, you know, we've been sitting in the car for so long. And I remember just eating sticky rice in a hand and then boiled chicken dip in Quetzal with a Dorito chip. Like, I don't, I don't know. Like, I don't know why, but that cheesy Dorito chip, right. That very American processed food, like just uh-huh. blended all this food together. And like, it doesn't make sense. Like from a taste perspective, right. Like boiled chicken with Doritos, but it was so good because I, it is such a perfect, like, um, just description of blending Hmong food with this Americanness that, you know, we grew mm. up with. And sometimes I still miss it today. Um, so I'll tell, you know, my partner, I'll tell Joe, he's just like, that sounds so disgusting. But I'm like, <laughs> it's no good because I think for us, it was also such a big move in the middle of our like very um, developmental childhood. Um, so it's just a, a meal that, I don't know, it just tastes so good at that time. And, you know, every now and then, you know, I'll add a Dorito. You know, to my food. <laughs> Thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, if you have any questions or comments that you want to reach uh, out to Dur for, uh, she is still kind of updating her web presence, but we can forward anything along to her. So please email us at wearebeyondhungry at gmail.com, or you can reach out to us on social at wearebeyondhungry on Instagram and on Facebook. Music is by our good friend, Bo Brenton. You can follow him at B-E-A-U-B-R-E-N-T-O-N. If you like this podcast, follow us or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. And if you like, give us a rating or write a review. We really appreciate it. Lastly, um, tell your friends if you really like this podcast. Get them to listen to us. Uh, we, we'd love to kind of reach out to more people and, and get some more ears on this and, uh, and get some more feedback as well. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thank you. Thank you.